Welcome to the THRP podcast with me, Yusuf. So I'll be. So we talk about the different things that you thought you never need to know, such as why the sky's blue or why Sheffield United are such a bad team. If you didn't realize, I support Sheffield Wednesday. So what are we waiting for? Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to us on whatever platform you are listening to your podcast. For this episode, we've invited Donald James as a guest, and we talked about his book, which he relatively recently released, named and talked about manners. And we also talked about his 35 years experience at NASA. We also talked about one image in particular, and if you want to check it out, you probably want to check out our socials, which will be linked in the bio alongside his book, check it out, his book too, and it was one of the most enjoyable episodes which I've recorded and edited so far, so without further ado, I'll allow you to listen to the episodes, and I hope you enjoy So thank you for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate you giving the time to come on. You're welcome, Yusuf. It's wonderful to meet you. And uh, thank you again for your patience and getting this arranged. And I really appreciate it. It's it's an honor to connect with you. Same here. So you recently wrote a book about named Patience. And it was focused on what you experienced with your mother and what she taught you, is that correct? Yes, the, um, the title of the book is um, something my mom used to tell my brother and me a lot, and it's called Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. Uh, the subtitle is Wisdom from Mama and 35 Years at NASA. So the book combines uh, things that I learned from my mother, who was a a high school teacher. And she was very concerned about how people show up in the world and how you interact with people. And it combines that with the things that I learned through my NASA years about um, success and meaning and careers and life, uh, and plus a lot of training that I did. So the idea around the title is that manners and we can talk about what that means because it means a lot of different things to different people but I, I view it very broadly what it says is that for example if you want to have a great career in an organization that it's not good enough just to be smart and just to be capable in the skill that you need to use for that organization so Um, And it's also not sufficient to just have a lot of money and think that money is going to buy you happiness and whatever you're looking for. And the examples that I like to give are, there are a lot of smart people who are in our prisons, right? You know, you, you can go to the prison and meet people who are very intelligent, they went to great schools, and they're very smart, but, you know, they, they went awry somewhere, they went off somewhere, and they got themselves in trouble. 
and and same with people who have a lot of money and you probably know some people like this i certainly do who have a lot of money but they're not happy they don't feel fulfilled they don't feel um you know and some of them you know even sadly take their lives so the point of the book is to write about um and it's particularly meant for younger people students and early career professionals to um, give them what I have learned about what I think is necessary to uh, have a fulfilling and meaningful uh, career primarily. So that's what the title of the book means. And um, I'm happy to, I'm very passionate about it and, and I appreciate your interest in it as well. So, before coming on, I read a bit about the um, a bit of like the background, um, about about a bit about the book itself, and it was very interesting. So, one quote which you written, which you you said your mother said, which I found very interesting was that it's it is in it is your neighborhood. Keep it clean and right, so they can't use it against you. Right. This was very interesting for me. It really kind of gave me an idea of what the book would be about, a bit of an idea of um, what she meant and a true understanding of what manners can do. So, yeah. and then it was able to make some connections for me. So it's, and then the first thing I th which came up to my mind was that um, this is recent, recently, it's very common to see that fam famous people people who are, have a huge impact in terms of society. They, some words which he said 10 years ago, 15 years ago, are now being scrutinized and looked in, in depth. So yes. is that what she meant or was it something different? Um, I think the answer is yes, that it's, it's, it's really up to the reader. And the reason I wrote it this way to take the lessons and the messages, even if she was referring to a specific thing, to then interpret it for your own experience. In my mother's case, I'll give you a very specific example. It was important to her that my brother and me, I just have one brother who was my collaborator with the book. It was important to her that if I was going to go to a meeting or to a place where there are people there that you know uh like a interview or something like that 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 i i dressed properly that i didn't i didn't i didn't show up in a way that um if somebody were to see me they might question something about me or whatever now this is really tricky because over time you know standards change and styles change and norms change and so it's really difficult to really get this right but her point was that if if you yusuf are a wonderful person and you have a lot to offer to an organization the question is why would you do something that would cause somebody else to question whether or not you would be a good fit and so when she talked about the neighborhood, she meant your, your personal space, as well as how you speak, as well as the things that you do. Now, sometimes it's different depending on your audience. So it's really about paying attention. Um, 
I'll give you another example that's real that's real sensitive where the 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 standards evolve over time. And I've talked to a lot of students about this. It has to do with people having tattoos on their skin. And I remember talking to a group of students. I gave a speech once about getting into NASA. And one student asked me a very uh, good question. He said, do you think if I go into an interview, I should cover up my tattoos? Is that going to be a negative against me? And I said, you know, I, a lot of it depends on the person that you're interviewing. They may have tattoos themselves. They may not care. They may be more way old fashioned and think that that says something about you. But here's, here's what I think the message of the point is. That person who asked me that question was at least aware of the possibility that how he looked could impact his chances in the interview. Are you with me on this? So yeah. he, 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 we don't necessarily know what the right answer is, okay? But he was aware of that. Um, I'll give you another tattoo example that um, uh, is the kind of thing that um, you have to be careful of. And this, this is a sensitive matter. This is not in the book. But many years ago, my brother and I, Dennis, who co-wrote the book with me, went to my local city to have breakfast. And we uh, sat down at the table and the server came over. And after a while, I, this, the server who was wearing a short sleeve shirt, my brother and I at the same time noticed that he had a swastika tattoo on his forearm. And I looked at my brother and I said, is that guy wearing the swastika? This is what, you know, five years ago. So this is clearly, you know, and he was not, you know, an older guy or anything like that. And, and it was puzzling to us because he was actually um, a, a minority. He wasn't, he wasn't Caucasian. He, he was uh, Hispanic. So it was confusing to us, but, but it bothered us because we're, we're very sensitive about symbols of hatred as we, understand it and appreciate it and I you know and I and so it was so we actually mentioned it to the manager who wrote us an apologetic letter and and said that they were aware that he had that and they had instructed him to always cover up the tattoo so he wouldn't offend anybody and and he didn't in that case and so that's an example and I don't want to you know, get into, you know, freedom of speech and things like that. And I actually learned when I traveled to Bali in Southeast Asia that the swastika symbol historically had meanings different than when the Nazis appropriated to do the big extermination. So, so there is a history to that symbol before what we typically know it as. And maybe for some reason, for religious reasons, you know, that's why he was, he had it. But, in, but what my mother would have said is that this man, if he had good manners, would be aware that in this day and age, it would be considered highly offensive to have a symbol like that visible when you're serving people, because he could have been serving, you know, a Jewish person whose parents died in the Holocaust, and that would have just tormented in some way. So 
that's an example, a tattoo example where, you know, you, you, you gotta be aware of things. Um, it even gets, um, it even gets more, you know, subtle in terms of how you dress and how you speak and how you carry yourself. And so the whole message is about just awareness and, and, and allowing, and, and allowing other people who are close to you to help you. So that's why I say later in the book, it's important to have a team of people in your life that you trust who can tell you the truth, right? And, and they can say, you know, um, whatever they need to say to help you be more aware. I hope that makes sense, but it's really an important point to get across because if you understand it, then you can design your manners to me, which is a manners is a way of showing up in the world and how you show up is inclusive of how you speak, how you hear, how you dress, how you carry yourself, your physical distance, the gestures, all of that is about manners. So being more informed about that will help you, I think, ingratiate yourself better with people in, in the world. I completely agree. And I want to have, this kind of relates to the, um, the comment that you made about the previous example, but if, it, if you think the answer is the same as the example that you gave, so just please tell me. So in this day and age, there's lots of different cultures, lots of different um, people with different backgrounds, experiences, who have experienced different things. So, and for, for some, it will be hard to know every single, what every single action it's gonna impact to yes. different people. So yes. when this happens, when it becomes unintentionally, do you think that this has a direct impact on them in terms of its manners or in terms of something else? I think that is a fantastic question. And I, I can't believe how wise the context of your questions are. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I, I really acknowledge you for that because this is, this is a case where it's an opportunity for people to grow rather than necessarily to ridicule people because of their particular ignorance. Um, let me see if I can give you a different example that was related because we had talked about the UAE earlier. A couple of years ago, I went to the same international conference that the UAE is planning to host. This time it was in uh, Bremen, Germany. And uh, I was there as a private citizen because I had already retired from NASA, but I like to go to these conferences. And I consider myself pretty culturally aware because I lived in different countries. I've had a lot of experiences and things like that. So um, at this conference, there are many countries which had exhibits and booths and things like that. And it turns out that right next to the NASA exhibit, was the UAE exhibit. And I wanted to go talk to them because I wanted to find out if um, I could offer my services for their upcoming conference. Now, they ended up canceling it because of COVID, but I, I said I had it. I went to go speak to the two women who were at the front desk and said, you know, I work with NASA. We had arranged for students to come to, the, to NASA. 
and I wanted to see if there's something I can do. So I'm talking to the two women. They both were wearing uh, traditional hajibs, headscarves. And when I finished, without thinking, I stuck my hand out to, to shake their hands. The first woman obliged, but the second woman didn't. She pulled her hand back. And as soon as she did that, I realized the mistake that I had made because I, I knew better. I knew that for uh, traditional Muslim women that they typically don't touch a man that they're not married to or they're not closely related to. But I forgot, I, I, I had not been in the culture long enough to, to absorb that into my own particular manners. So, you know, they, they, you know, they accepted my apology. There was no sense of shame and things like that. And, you know, it was, you know, I, you know, for all I know, the first woman felt like, well, we're in a Western country, you know, that's the way it is, but it's almost like it was an individual choice. So here's my point about that. And that is that there are a lot of people who, unlike me, probably would have no idea that they're, they, they would have that kind of cultural practice. But I would like to think that in, in a particular incidence, it's an opportunity for learning. So for example, let's say I was really ignorant, I didn't know, and a person refused to shake my hand. And let's say I, my reaction was, well, why don't you wanna shake my hand? I mean, you know, I don't have any disease or anything. Then it would be the opportunity for the person to explain very practically. He said, well, in, in my culture, it is not traditional that women touch the hand of a man to whom she's not married. And they would explain it. And the person would hopefully would react and say, oh, wow, thank you very much for educating me on that I didn't know so that we can learn together because we're we're going to be in that situation a lot you know based on 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 what you what you've learned and all that so I hope that makes sense because that was a personal experience where I I just forgot and so I didn't I didn't think of it um you know when I when I did that it was it was it was I was not being mindful at the moment I was in I was being I just reacted you know, like how I always react when you say goodbye to somebody, you know, you just reach your hand out and shake your hand. And so, so that's an opportunity where if you're not aware of certain things culturally, then it's an opportunity to learn and to ask, you know, what's appropriate. And I do that a lot when I'm in other, other countries, I ask, you know, what's appropriate. Um, I spent some time in Morocco once when I was much younger and you know, I remember, uh, you know, I was speaking French there because that's uh, where they, they speak French in Morocco. And I remember one young man I was talking to, was he was really upset with me because I wasn't speaking Arabic. And I said, well, I'm an American. I'm not, even, I'm not Moroccan, man. I had a beard on and everything. So, you know, they probably thought I was Moroccan because I, you know, I have fair skin and had a beard on. But so I had to show them my driver's license that I'm an American. So I don't know how to speak Arabic. So I can speak French though. So I don't know. I hope that's helpful, but it's a great question. And I think we have the opportunity if we're going to cultivate a sense of good manners between each other to be willing to learn to ask you know tell me about this practice you know help me understand the nature of it it's not up to me to judge whether it's good or not it's up for me to learn you know what's what what's appropriate for the person and then to honor that person by 
giving them the you know to, to be able to honor that right instead of dishonoring that i hope that makes sense so great question that man that's great that's great thank you so um the, the response was fully answered the question and gave some sort of thought into the understanding of manners and a bit of an insight towards your book so i'm going to move on onto a different topic which i found a bit interesting so you mentioned how you spent 35 years at nasa and throughout all your experiences the main reason why you and your brother correct me if i'm wrong was because of the 747 or was it a different aircraft yeah so i got interested in uh, aviation at a very young age because when i came of age um, the u.s was beginning to develop uh, the supersonic transport you know like the concord uh, it wasn't the concord but it was our version of it as well as the big jumbo jet and i had flown on airplanes as a little kid but these were completely different i mean you know, man, one can fly faster than the speed of sound. And another one was just this gigantic airplane that I didn't have any idea how the thing can get off the air, um, off the ground, excuse me. And so that, that got my original interest in aviation. And because of my interest, my brother was also interested. And so then, you know, we said, well, we're going to be pilots and we're going to be engineers and work on airplanes. We were pretty naive about what it takes to do all this, but that's how we got interested in it. As you know, probably know, the, the United States elected to not continue to support a supersonic transport program and then the British and the French were the ones who developed the only um, commercial SST um, for, for the time being. And, but we did pursue the big 747. And I'll never forget the first time I flew on one. I think, I don't know where we were going, but I was walking through the airport in San Francisco and I remember looking out the window and the, and the nose of the plane was like, higher than where we typically it wasn't like you weren't looking down and I remember gawking out of the window and just shaking my head and saying there's no way that thing can get off the ground how is that possible I was just amazed at just the aerodynamics of how it was possible so um so that got my original interest but then I in college, I took a detour, uh, a turn, not really a detour. I had changed my mind of my interest uh, because of my experience in living in developing countries. I, I, there was two things that happened. One is it, it, at, when I got into college was after the Apollo program. So there wasn't as much interest in, in space and aeronautics at the time. And then I had more concerns about the problems of developing countries and so I wanted to spend more time on that now it's probably because of my my father's work in the foreign service so I changed in college and um so I studied engineering for about a year um and but then I changed um but then later on when I had an opportunity to work for NASA which you know I write about in the book about how that came about I rediscovered my original passion and interest for aviation and aerospace. But by then I wasn't trained to work in it directly. You know, I had, I had different skills, 
My brother, on the other hand, uh, he went right into the military after college and flew with the Marine Corps and, and ended up becoming a commercial pilot, which he is to this day. So, um, so we both stayed in it, but we took different paths to get there. So right now um, we're on a Zoom video meeting and behind you there's a photo of an airplane carrying up a space shuttle, which I presume. So yeah. when was that photo taken? So um, I forgot the exact year, but that is a NASA 747 carrying on the back of it space shuttle Endeavor. When NASA decided to uh, 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 cancel the space shuttle program, in other words, stop flying the space shuttle, the administrator had to make, who was my boss, had to make a decision as to where the space shuttles would go. In that particular photo, and there's a reason that I like that particular photo, is that this, this is flying over Los Angeles, California, and specifically the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. And the reason that's important to me is that that particular football stadium, American football stadium, is next to the university that I studied, is the University of Southern California, where our football team plays. And coincidentally, years later, when uh, so I went to USC, and then my son went to USC, and he played on the marching band, and so he used he would frequently march on that very field that the plane is you can see in the photograph. So that was taken when they were bringing that space shuttle to Los Angeles to be stored and not stored to be dis exhibited in the California Science Center which happens to be right next to the Coliseum. So eventually that plane landed at Los Angeles airport. And Yusuf, there is, it, I can't tell you what a special time it was when they brought the space shuttle to Los Angeles and they took it off the plane and then they created a special truck to, to carry it through the streets of Los Angeles to get to the California Science Center. You can probably find it on YouTube. It's, you know, the Endeavor, Endeavor trip to California Science Center. Uh, I, because they had to do all these weird things. They had to develop a special truck that could turn a certain way to navigate the streets. And people came out of everywhere to watch this and it was it was like a happy occasion and people were sitting in trees and saw top of their houses and the shuttle was going through these neighborhoods in some cases they had to take light posts off so that the wings would fit i've seen a movie of this and it just it, it just um gives me goosebumps and part of the reason is it it will only happen one time it'll never happen again because we're not building any more space shuttles and unless they decide to take that space shuttle out of the science center which i doubt uh, it's going to stay there so it was it was a unique opportunity that will never happen again when they bring a shuttle through the streets of los angeles and it was it was amazing and so um I had a little bit to do with that because before it flew over LA, it flew over um, Northern California and I was responsible for arranging some of the activities around that. And so 
you know, I was proud to participate, but that's what that is. So that's how we move the space shuttle. It used to land in California, and then we had to take it back to Florida for launch. And they would use the 747 and they piggyback the shuttle on top of that to fly it, to fly it um, back to wherever it had to go. And so, yeah, so it, you can buy the poster. It's at the California Science Center. It's Endeavor Flyover uh, of Los Angeles. And it's one of my favorite posters. And you can see that it's next to a uh, cover of my book. And then um, the drawing underneath the book, you can't see and the listeners can't see, is a very special gift uh, that I was given when I retired. It's a, uh, a sketch artist back in the Apollo days was allowed to go into the control rooms to sketch some of the events for history's sake. And, and uh, I happened to get one of those when they were sketching one of the, um, the lunar extra vehicle activities when they were walking on the moon. There was an artist drawing what was happening in the control room in Houston. And a friend of mine uh, gave me that drawing. So I'm very, very proud of that. That's really cool. So. I'll make sure they'll be able to see both photos, the, the cover yeah. of your book and the photo itself. I have it yeah. open right now and I'm looking at it. It really looks, I'm still trying to get over how it's able to go through a road and it's- You have to, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, um, I'll see if I can find the video that I remember and I'll send you the link and you can share that with your listeners. But it, it really was an incredible experience. I, I've seen the movie and just to watch, to look at a picture of all these houses and neighborhoods and all of a sudden you see this tail of a space shuttle going through and they had to build this special truck that the wheels had to turn a certain way in order to navigate around. And it took like, forever. I mean, I forgot how many hours, like, you know, I don't know, 12 hours or something like that. They started early in the morning and to bring it through the streets because you have to go from Los Angeles airport to, you know, downtown Los Angeles because the sense of science center is kind of in the middle of LA. But, um, you know, what was, what was wonderful was how it brought people together you know, it didn't, no matter what race you were, gender, ethnicity, religion, political affiliate, everybody was just so excited to see the space shuttle rolling through their neighborhood. I mean, can you imagine some kid who's like 10 looking at this? They're probably astronauts right now because they grew up with a space shuttle in, in their backyard. I mean, that's like never happened. It's, I just still can't get over how cool that was to see that happen. And um, man, so yeah, so that's that's Space Shuttle Endeavor. So yeah, it's cool. I have two questions. Yeah. They both may seem a bit like as if a five-year-old may ask, but the first question is why didn't they fly the Space Shuttle by itself? So the Space Shuttle is... Uh, in a way, it can fly by itself. It's, it's actually a great question. The way they designed it was it's designed to launch like a typical rocket vertically, right? So it sits on a launch pad vertically. And the space shuttle has its own engines. And then uh, it's, uh, and then they have the solid rocket motors attached to a big gas tank. And so if you see a typical 
space shuttle standing on the launch pad, you really see three things. You see, I mean, four things. You see the space shuttle orbiter, what we call itself the winged vehicle. And then right behind it, you see the big orange uh, external tank. That's just a big gas tank. And then on the side of the external tank are what we call the solid rocket motor. So that's, that uses solid fuel. And then the space shuttle engines uses a combination of uh, liquid oxygen and liquid nitrogen. And so um, when it ignites, it, it provides the thrust to get into orbit. When the space shuttle comes back to land, the reason they built it like an airplane is they wanted to be able to land the space shuttle on a runway, but it's not powered. It's just a big, heavy glider, right? So there's the engines can't come on so they can you know, they can land anywhere they want to go. They have to precisely calculate the landing based on, you know, where it is in orbit and when it's going to come back. And they, they've got this down pretty um, tightly. So it, uh, so when it lands, it's just a big heavy glider. So it's not designed to fly like an airplane um, itself. And so, and that was, and that was purposeful. So that, that's why it can't just flying its own. That's why it has to have the 747 carry it around because it's those engines are only designed to get it into orbit, not to fly around the atmosphere. I see. So technically it could just go vertically high then glide down onto the airport. It could That's exactly how it works. Yeah. And the reason is that you remember in the Apollo days, the Apollo capsules, everything was done once. Everything was never reused. The, the first stage was dropped in the ocean. The second stage dropped in the ocean and the capsule came back. It landed in the ocean under parachutes. And then it, they didn't refurbish it and reuse it for another mission. They built a whole new capsule. So they wanted to have something that was reusable. So the, we only, we built like what, six shuttles. We lost two of them. We replaced one. They, they only, um, uh, they reused them. We flew the shuttle many times. In fact, if you, I know your listeners can't see this, but on the other wall in my room, right here where my finger is, those are pins for all the space shuttle flights that flew while I was at NASA. And so they, and they, they flew on the mission. So they gave that to me when I retired. Um, so there was many missions, many space shuttle missions, but the idea was to keep reusing the same vehicle over and over again. I'm trying to count how many there are and it's, it's a lot. I don't think uh, I'm able to count them. It's... Yeah, I don't, um... Uh, actually, that one, that one is the space station. Those are the space oh, okay. stations. The the one the one with the space shuttle is it's like on the wall and top, and you can't see it. And it's about let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. One hundred and seventy. So I have a hundred. I have one hundred and seventy space shuttle pins of different missions and. They, they were all the missions up until I retired. And how many years was the space shuttle like? Being so the first, the first space shuttle launch was in April of 1981. Uh, I, I started at NASA in um, uh, July of 82. So I started okay. just after they started launching. So it was still pretty new when I, when I became in the agency. 
So it's like 20 years and there's 100 ish flights. Yeah. 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 So it was uh, 81 to 2001. They start, they stopped in 2006, I think was the last, no, it was the last show. Um, I wasn't it like 2003 or something? Google it because I don't remember. You think July 8th, 2011 was the last space shuttle mission. Oh. And it was, uh, uh, which crew was that? Which mission was that? Last flight. I think that was Endeavor. STS-135. Atlantis, sorry. Space shuttle Atlantis. So yeah, so from 20, 20 to from 1981 to 2011, so um, you can do the math on that, right? So that's uh, 21, 30, 30 years. Yeah, that's, that's very fascinating. Oh, yeah. so it was the, okay. I, wait, so I thought the, I'll, I'll search up myself, no, don't worry. So where do you think aviation will go in the future? Um, so NASA is working on, remember I told you that the United States stopped working on the supersonic transport. So now we were yeah. working on it again. The reason they stopped working on it before was several technical challenges they couldn't overcome at the time. One of which was the sonic boom problem. So mm -hmm. because uh, vehicles that fly faster than the speed of sound create a sonic boom, if you flew over cities and land, the boom could break windows and scare people and spook animals and things like that. So that was one problem. The other problem was when you have carbon-based engines flying at such high altitudes, it, it ruins the ozone layer at those high altitudes, and that, that's not good environmentally. But so NASA is actually working on correcting those problems right now. And we have a vehicle called the Low Boom Demonstrator. You can Google that. It's, it's being tested down in our Air Force Base down in Southern California, Edwards Air Force Base by one of our NASA centers there. And so they're working on how to shape the aircraft and how to design engines that don't uh, emit a big boom. It, will be, it might be a slight boom, but nothing that would really freak anybody out. Um, and then they're working on different type of fuel systems that aren't, aren't harmful to the environment. So there are, and there's a, there's a couple of private companies working on developing supersonic private jets, um, but NASA is working on the technology in order to potentially enable supersonic flight, you know, way in the future. Um, so I think you'll see that. There's also a lot of work on electric airplanes, uh, which means that the power is done by high efficiency batteries again, as part of an effort to minimize the environmental footprint, right? Um, the challenge now is that, uh, you know, airlines, because of their profit margins, you know, they really have to be very efficient in carrying people. And so I think you're going to see a lot of increase in fuel efficiency, because that's a high cost item, a lot more automation. Uh, there's some efforts to look at uh, totally autonomous aircraft, right? We can fly drones autonomously anywhere in the world. And so the question is, you know, can you fly 
big drones with people in them. I mean, we've flown commercial planes with nobody in it before. We've done that. That technology is available. But, you know, it's like, would anybody get into a driverless Uber car, right? You know, that's, you know, you've seen, hear about. So would you get into an airplane where there's no pilots because it's being controlled all by machines and computers? So I'm not, I'm not sure we're ever going to be there or not, but, you know, there are people who are looking at that. Um, the other thing is there's efforts to to build suborbital launch vehicles like, you know, Richard Branson has his Virgin Galactic, which can take people on a parabolic flight, which gives you about seven to eight minutes of full um, zero gravity experience, and he's planning to charge people for this so that's that's a vehicle that's launched you know on the bottom of an airplane and then it, it it takes off on rocket engine and then it lands like an airplane much like the space shuttle did but i think though there'll, there'll be improvement in materials composite materials there'll be improvement in engines that are being worked on now um uh, i think aviation uh, you know is here to stay it's just a matter of of improving a lot of safety and air traffic and you know if, if you know you know pandemic stopped a lot of aviation but the assumption is that it will increase again eventually and and so there's still challenges with managing the airspace so there's a lot of research going on in the airspace itself so more fuel efficient airplanes lighter airplanes electric airplanes faster airplanes um, and then high, more safety in the airspace uh, are some of the things that I see on the horizon. So we've had, um, this is the second guest so far on the podcast, I had some sort of background in aviation. The previous one worked on the Boeing 777X, and one of the main things that they mentioned was XR, so augmented reality and the impact that will have on aviation and in the general world. So do you think that the experience that one would have on aviation would differ to the same way that we have it so far? So it's gonna be seated. So you're gonna get into like an airport, you're gonna go get seated in your assigned seats. You possibly would book your seat before you get on, then you get on, you go, and then you get to your destination. Do you think it's gonna be any change in terms of the experience one could have? Uh, I do. And in fact, um, I think the technology of XR, VR, AR is going to continue to mature and then it's going to be up to innovators to figure out, you know, how they could use this and integrate this. I know American Airlines is starting to use augmented reality to help people get to their location, like if you're in a big busy airport. So let's say I fly into you know your airport in Muscat and I've never been there before and I need to get to you know wherever I need to get to. And so the I can have glasses on that can interpret signs or through other sensors that can tell me in the language that I needed to see it in or hear it in, you know, go down this hallway, turn left or whatever. So I see that kind of technology definitely happening. Ironically, um, I worked on a start with a startup company. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get sufficient funding to develop this, but we were working on using 
uh, XR technology for passengers. And the idea was that, and the technology is possible, uh, we just couldn't get the funding to develop it, where you as a passenger, regardless of where you're sit, seat, sitting in the airplane, can look around, not, not with headsets, but just with your, your iPad or your iPhone, and you can see what's outside of the airplane, and you can get information about what's outside of the airplane. So let's say that I'm flying over a city, and I, and I you know, don't know where I am. I can hold up my phone, and it can say, oh, I'm flying over a muscat, and it can say it has a population of, you know, five million, and, you know, here's some interesting things about it, and, and it's happening real time, or if I'm over the ocean, it can show me whale migrations and things of that nature, so the idea was <clears throat> to not only you know, provide people with information that's happening outside of them, but to enhance that information in a way that is of interest to them. Uh, so we, we, our model was every seat is a window seat. Now you've seen this already starting to happen. I think uh, one of the airlines in the Middle East is experimenting with uh, uh, virtual reality built uh, windows instead of having you know, you're in an, a compartment where there's no windows, but the walls are made such that it can show you what's outside the airplane so you don't feel claustrophobic. It turns out that a lot of the psychology research on why some people are a bit fearful of flying is feeling like they're confined into a, in a small space and they can't, they can't experience their broader environment. So we hypothesize that an ability to have people feel like they are outside of the airplane virtually could help them psychologically. So we were very excited about this, but unfortunately for many reasons, we couldn't get, um, you know, and then the, the pandemic happened. And so a lot of venture capitalists, you know, just were thinking short term, they didn't, you know, they didn't see, you know, a lot of flying going on. I still think it's going to happen. It's just, I, I'm, I'm sorry that we couldn't make it happen. But so the answer is yes. I think what will happen is the technology, the base technology will evolve and develop. And then other people will figure out how to use it and apply it, in, both in aviation as well as in other areas. Uh, the one last point I'll say about this, one of the things that uh, NASA was working on many years ago for the supersonic transport was windowless cockpits. And the reason for that is, is that if you remember for the, for the Concorde, they had to lower the nose so the pilots could see the, the ground when they were landing and taking off. Well, that adds weight to the plane and mechanical complications. And so that's cost issues. So we experimented with what if you didn't have a window in the cockpit, you know, if you just think about, you know, drones, drones don't have windows, they just use, you know, high fidelity sensors and cameras, so you can see anywhere. So what if you provided that information to the pilot in a very, so if they're flying in the dark or in the fog or in the clouds, it doesn't matter what the pilot sees, it's clear exactly what's going on. So, you know, there's obviously apprehension about this idea of having no, <laughs> no windows because, you know, what happens if your systems go out and all of a sudden you're blind? Um, there's some workarounds to that. But um, so, so that isn't a way using augmented reality for some technical benefits. So I absolutely see that. And I, I would say 
if students were to ask me, although I usually don't like to, to, to suggest a field for people to study because it really ought to be up to the individual and what their passions are, but I would say that anybody who pursues and gets into augmented reality and virtual reality probably has a very promising future because I see a lot of applications for that. Medicine, telemedicine, you can have a doctor in Oman working on a patient in Iowa, you know, by using virtual reality, that doctor can see exactly what the machine is seeing in Iowa. And maybe that Omani doctor is like the world's expert in one specific problem. So I really see the day where you as a patient, you know, you get the care you need, regardless of where it's located, not because you happen to live in an area that you have access to it, right? You know, so an expert can be anywhere and can do a lot more things, uh, but it doesn't matter where that expert resides. Just like we're finding out with school now, right? You know, I don't know about you, but our kids are all, you know, not mine, but a lot of people, they're at home learning, right? They're, and they said, well, if I have to be at home, I'm gonna go to Hawaii and go to school. And I know people who did that. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of common. Most people go and go to their home countries because it's easier they would be able to see their families to some extent. So it's, I think we should start wrapping up. It's kind of becoming very long, but at the same time, it was a pleasure to talk about these topics with you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give a view on the um, episode and share it with your friends. If you want to check out more of our episodes, go on our portfolio on whatever platform you listen to your podcast, subscribe, and check out the previous episodes. And if you want to stay up to date to everything related to the THRP podcast, check out our Insta and regularly check out our website.